Well, good morning, church. Happy Family Day weekend. It's wonderful to see you all here and welcome you here with us. Uh, Yeah, thank you, kids, for leading us in worship. I can just about guarantee there will be uh, less dancing and actions uh, during this part of our segment. Uh, But yeah, that was a lot of fun. Uh, I would invite you, uh, if you have your Bibles with you, if you don't, there's one in the pew in front of you. invite you to turn with me to joining uh, to Luke chapter 7 this morning. We are continuing to look at the life of Jesus uh, as it unfolds in Luke's gospel. Uh, And I'm excited about our time this morning um, because I think this passage is one that many of us probably need to hear this morning. Uh, This passage is just a very powerful reminder Uh, of the grace and forgiveness and love that we have in Christ Jesus. And I think that's probably probably fitting, uh, as many of you may have known. Last week was Valentine's Day. Uh, Many celebrated. Uh, It was actually my first Valentine's Day with Debbie since we got married. So, you know, a lot of pressure trying to do it right. But, you know, Valentine, it can be a mixed bag for a lot of people. Uh, I know that, (laughs) this is one of my favorite stories, there's some zoos uh, that as a fundraiser will actually allow you to name a, like a cockroach after your ex before they feed it to one of their animals. So, uh, you know, yeah, but for the most part, Valentine's Day is really about, it's about showing love to someone. And sometimes, we know, being in love makes you do crazy things. You know, when you're in love, you spend hours in front of the mirror before every date. You write poems to each other, even though you're not necessarily poetic. You have sudden urges to carve your initials into perfectly good trees. Just being in love can make people silly. Uh, but, you know, at the same time, something happens the longer we're in love sometimes. We kind of grow out of that silliness. And it's not something that happens overnight. It's not something you ever plan on happening. But I think many of us know that slowly but surely, things can just begin to change. And we, when we're in love for a long time, we begin to exchange the costly for the practical. We exchange the excessive for the economical. And we exchange the spontaneous for the responsible. And we sort of stop climbing high mountains and swimming deep oceans for love and would really just prefer something that doesn't cost quite so much and doesn't keep us up too late. And yet it's not that you don't stop loving that other person. It's just that over the months and years you spend together, we can sometimes simply let our passion grow cold. And sadly, the same thing can happen to us as Christians as well. We can let our love, even our love for God, grow cold. In fact, there's that passage in the book of Revelation Chapter 2, verse 4, where Jesus says to the church, I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. And I think that's a danger that we all face, where we begin to sort of settling for less when it comes to our relationship with Jesus, where we start just going through the motions. But it doesn't have to be that way. Because what we see in our passage this morning is, I would think, is a good cure for a cold heart. If you have your Bibles open, follow along with me as we read there, Luke chapter 7, as we look at love that is born out of forgiveness. Luke 7, we're going to be reading it from verse 36 to verse 50 this morning. And it says this, One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. 
And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with, her hair, with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who's touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sin? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Let's pray. Father God, um, we just ask once again, Lord, that you would be with us in our time as we open your word, that Lord, we would have you speak to our hearts. And Lord, I am convinced that there are people here who need to hear this truth today, uh, need to hear about this forgiveness and this mercy and this grace that is available to them. People who come with a burden uh, just on their heart that they need to release and let go at the feet of Jesus. Lord, we ask that, Lord, you would be with us in a very powerful and very special way as we look at your word. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, just put on your imagination caps for just a few moments, because I want you to imagine just a scene with me this morning as we, as we go back in time to when Jesus himself was walking the earth, and it's still sort of the relative early days of his ministry, and yet we know there's this growing number of people who were taking notice of this young rabbi who was preaching and teaching about the kingdom of God, because his teachings were so different from anything that anyone had really heard before. I mean, they were words of grace. They were words of love. They were words spoken with authority. And they were words of life. Words of life to a people whose hearts had kind of grown cold over time as their faith became little more than a religion of sort of legalistic rules. And it didn't hurt that Jesus was performing a few miracles along the way. In fact, most recently, as we heard last week, in a town called Nain, Jesus raised the son of a widow back from the dead. 
And that's sure to get people talking. Even among the sort of the upper crust of religious society, even the Pharisees themselves could no longer dismiss Jesus as sort of a passing fad. So it was time for them to sort of take a more active interest in Jesus' ministry. Because, you know, there's too much at stake to let someone like Jesus run around preaching and performing miracles without the Pharisees sort of giving him their stamp of approval. So Jesus gets this invitation to dinner from a man named Simon. And Simon was a Pharisee. And in many ways, Simon was about to put Jesus and his ministry to the test. And it all seems like sort of a rather harmless invitation as Luke sets the scene for us. Again, Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 36, it says, One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And I kind of imagine how this might have played out. And keep in mind here that when Luke uses the words here, invited him to eat with them, it implies not just sort of, it's not just a little sit down. It's not like, hey, Jesus, let's go grab, you know, bag lunch and sit on your, the patio. Uh, today, we would think of this as a dinner party. This, is, this would be a banquet, a big to-do, you know, formal dress, cloth napkins, several courses of food, you know, one of those things where there's all those spoons at your place setting, you don't know what any of them are for. It's, it's that kind of event. It's a big deal. So the household, you know, was probably bustling to and fro with servants in the kitchen and dining room, formalizing preparations for the big event. In fact, even perhaps through the streets of town, there'd be see other important people sort of beginning to make their way towards Simon's house for this as well, you know. And if so, the rest of the guest list would have been impressive. Probably the chief rabbi of the town, maybe some rich business owners or two, maybe some other notable instructors of the Jewish law, important men. Certainly no sort of riffraff. Only the best and the brightest would have been invited on this night to dine with Jesus. And at the doorway of his house would probably have been Simon himself, handsomely dressed in his finest robes, you know, as he worked the crowd until everybody had sort of taken their seats in preparation for dinner. And yet in the bustle of all that commotion of getting things ready, lost in the commotion of the dining room, unbeknownst to everyone else, off in the shadows, a small figure moved through the night with a purpose. It was a solitary woman carrying a package with great care. And anyone would have seen it by the light of day. That package she carried would have been recognized immediately because it was basically the trademark of a precious and costly perfume. But no one did notice her. Because that night she was just one more body among all the servants and the commotion that was filling that house. But then as the guests took their seat, she gathered her courage and she made her move. Which Luke tells us beginning in verse 37, And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. And what a moment that must have been when this unknown woman, you know, stealing herself against what she knew would be the reaction of those who were inside the house around that table when she approached Jesus. This uninvited guest 
And I'm sure heads turned. Conversations just stopped short. Servants may have frozen in place. Jaws dropped as everyone sort of stared in disbelief. You can almost imagine the silence, that eerie silence that just filled the room when this happened. As people began to realize just who it was that came into that room. And yet I think this woman needed only a moment to look around that table to find the face of the man that she was looking for. And you know, in meeting his eyes, she saw not rejection and scorn like all of the others, but in his eyes, she saw welcome and life. And what was only probably a moment's time, the hush of the, the, the stunned dinner's guests was replaced with the sobs of a woman weeping. As she took in her hand her jar and poured it upon the feet of Jesus. The house would have been flooded with the sweet fragrance of her spice as the perfume mingled with her tears. The jar of perfume was broken and poured out just as the woman was a broken shell wanting to be released from the shackles of her sin and shame that bound her. And this moment is, to me, just such a picture of utter and complete brokenness in a person. I actually heard something a few years ago on 100 Huntley Street that always stuck with me. Because the person there that day said that this bottle of perfume may have actually have been this woman's dowry for when she got married. That her parents, you know, starting when she was young, whenever they had a few extra dollars scraped together, they would go and buy some perfume, one drop at a time, over and over through the years, to fill up that little jar. And as a little girl, how her hopes and dreams must have become tied up with that little bottle of fragrance. Imagining the husband she would one day have, the children she would one day raise, the, the home that she would one day have of her own. And the more drops that were added, the bigger her dreams became. But if that was the case, somewhere along the line, life just didn't work out the way that she'd hoped. Because... There's no mention of a husband. There's no mention of children or a family or of a home of her own. She was just a woman with a full bottle of perfume and an empty heart full of shattered dreams. And we know that somewhere along the line, alone in the world, her hope turned to desperation as she began to sell her body to the men of that town just to get by. And the people who were around the table that night, they knew it. Verse 39, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this was who was touching him, for she is a sinner. Because you know what? We have words for people like this who sell their bodies on the street, and very few of them are kind. But those were exactly the words that were going through Simon's head as he looked at this woman. And it seems that Simon only needs one look to sum up just who and what this woman was. She was a sinner. It was that simple. A prostitute. That's what the word means or implies in this passage. And make no mistake, she was the kind of person who would never be welcome in the home of someone like Simon. And Simon figures that, you know what, if this Jesus, if he's half the man of God that some people said he was, he should know that too. But of course, Jesus did know it. Jesus knew all about it. In fact, he knew better 
than even Simon himself. Because Jesus knew that small towns can be cruel places and that few things are ever kept a secret. And Jesus knew that a woman like this who lived a sinful life was sure to be the object of jokes and anger and scorn. Where everywhere she went, she went, she was met with contempt and revulsion. Children might have thrown rocks at her. Women, women would turn their backs on her and whisper about her. When she needed to do business, she was sent to the back door so that other customers wouldn't have to be seen associating with a woman like that. That is until the sun went down and the men of the town began to seek her out for her services. It is, after all, the world's oldest profession. And yet she knew that those men who confessed their love for her in her bed would the next day shun her in the marketplace. Some of those men may have very well been around the table in the room that night, trying very hard not to meet her eyes. But that was the state of this woman's world. Rejected and shunned, alone and abused, shamed and scorned. And you know what? If Jesus wasn't there as the guest of honor, chances are the men at that table would have already started throwing food at her and before they dragged her into the street and left her in the dirt. And she would have taken it. Because her shame and her sin had led her to believe that was all that she was worth. And in that, I think this woman's need, this woman's pain, is very much like, not unlike our own. Because many of us have been there, facing that pain of loneliness, the pain of rejection, the pain of guilt, pain of shame, pain of depression and desperation, feeling at times like nobody cares. That no one understands what we are going through. Instead, this woman, day after day, she'd just try to soldier on, hiding so hard to hide behind her own toughness. Trying hard to, to pretend she didn't care about what other people said or thought. Ignoring all of those judgmental looks of her neighbors. All the while hoping that none of them would ever truly know the extent, the full extent of her sin. But this is where the story gets good. Because in verse 40, we read this. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning towards the woman, he said, Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she has loved much, but he, but, he, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And that, in no uncertain terms, is God's heart for sinners. Because think about Jesus' response here. When all of the others in that room were rejecting this woman, 
What does Jesus do? Well, Jesus' response to this woman is forgiveness. His response is to offer her grace. His response is acceptance, and his response is salvation. Jesus redeems this woman, and he restores this woman. And he does it in part by telling Simon a story about forgiveness. In fact, it's a story about a forgiveness big enough to overcome even a very great debt. And then he asks Simon a question. Jesus asks Simon, which man do you think has been forgiven? Who will, which one of them will love the man who forgives them more? And it's a simple question with an obvious answer. And we see in verse 43, Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he has canceled the larger debt. And Jesus said to him, you have judged rightly. And just like that, Simon gets it right. Jesus says, Simon, you understood my story. In fact, he says, Simon, you have judged correctly. And for me, that's an interesting choice of words Jesus uses there because it's clear Simon considers himself a judge over others. He judged the woman. In fact, he gave his own judgment on Jesus, his worthiness as a prophet, and now he has judged the men in this parable. He's a judge. But the question that's still unanswered is, how did he come up with that answer? I mean, Simon, why would one man love more than the other? I mean, what rationale, Simon, did you use? Was it something the men were wearing? Was it the way the men talked, the way the men walked, the way the men looked? Did one of those men have a higher place in the synagogue, Simon? Did one come from a better family line? Was one man more respectable in society? Was that why he was the more loving man? Because that's the way that Simon judged people in the real world. But you know, Jesus in this story, he takes all of those things away to get to the real core. Simon, why did one man love more? Well, it's because of the difference in their hearts. There's the difference between the men and the parable was a difference that was found on the inside. And Simon was a person who spent a lot of time on external things. He put on airs, he played to the crowds, he did things to be seen by men, but he spent very little time on his inner life. Simon ignored his own heart and he judged others the same way. Yet even Simon has to grudgingly admit that great forgiveness and great love go hand in hand. And that's why I love what, what Jesus does next. In fact, I think this is one of the most powerful moments in all of, this, all of the Gospels. Jesus says to Simon, Simon, do you see this woman? This woman who has come into your house that you have refused to even acknowledge. This woman that you and your guests are trying so hard to ignore. This woman to who, whose life to you is worth less than that of a dog. Simon, do you see this woman? And I know, Simon, I know you can see her with your eyes. But can you see her with your heart? I mean, see her. Really see her for the person who she is. Look past her appearance, past your own bias, past her sins, and past even her own past, and truly see her as a broken woman a broken sinner who is weeping for forgiveness. Can you see her, Simon, as a woman, as a precious child of God, giving an offering of the most precious thing that she owned because she has nothing left in her life to hold on to except grace? 
Because sometimes we all have trouble actually seeing people. It's true. It's easier just to label a person and move on. That guy's a nerd. That's a loser. He's a jerk. That's an idiot. That guy's just a druggie. They're homeless. They're just a bunch of sinners. But it's harder to see past those labels to the person underneath. So Jesus asks, do you see this woman, Simon? Because if you could, you would see a sinner who needs salvation. You would see a woman with a great debt of sin who needs forgiveness. And here's the truth, Simon. It should be you on your knees before Jesus. Because you know what? All of the things that she's doing are things you should have done. Things that all of us should, be, should do when we come face to face with Jesus. Because when we really choose to look at our lives and understand the extent of our own sinfulness, there really is only one place we truly belong. And that's at the feet of Jesus, broken by our own sin, throwing ourselves on the grace and the mercy of God. And with that in mind, I want to just give you a few applications before we close that I hope will get our hearts in the same place this morning. These are five simple lessons that I think should shape our understanding of salvation itself and just help us embrace our forgiveness. And the first lesson is this. When we come to Christ, we must do so in brokenness and repentance. You know, what a profound conviction of sin it must have been in this woman's life to cause such tears. Tears enough to, we're told, that, to wet the feet of Jesus. This is true repentance. There's no pride, no false airs, no lies, no denial. It's only being honest with ourselves about the sin in our life and having it leave us broken. It's what Charles Spurgeon used to call a deep and bitter sense of sin. Because only in a deep and bitter sense of our own sin, only in humility can we truly kneel before Christ and find forgiveness. Salvation truly enters our lives through a broken heart. And that leads us to the second lesson, which is the basis of forgiveness is grace by faith. Now Jesus says in verse 50, your faith has saved you. In this passage, we see many things. We see great humility, great sacrifice, great acts of worship, but the only thing that saves is faith. We're saved by grace through faith. That's it, and that's all. Because you don't have to be worthy to be, to be forgiven. In fact, you can't be worthy. You don't have to be perfect. You don't have to have your life all together because it's not our acts, it's not our deeds, it's not our reputation or our standing in society, but it's in our hearts that we find salvation when we put our faith in Christ. All we need is a willingness to accept God's grace by faith because we are saved by grace through faith and faith alone. Then a third lesson about our passage I think we see is that the blessing of forgiveness is peace. And Jesus says to this woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And that's amazing to me because this woman who came in, entered in shame, now leaves knowing true forgiveness. She entered a sinner, she leaves a saint. This woman, the woman who wept at Jesus' feet with nothing to give, has now found a treasure in Christ that nothing on earth can take away. Because she knows the peace of God. 
She knows the assurance of her salvation. She knows a freedom from her guilt and her burdens unlike anything she could have imagined. The peace of God now rests upon her life. And is it going to stop the dirty looks from others in the marketplace? No. But you know what? In her heart, the matter is settled. The blessing of forgiveness is peace. And I think a big part of that peace came from the ability to forgive even herself from the things that she has done. To let go of her past and find new life in Christ. Because we're told in the Bible, we're not just forgiven by Jesus, we're given a brand new start. The old is gone, the new has come. The past has no more power. Your future can be one of hope. And if you're struggling with your own shame this morning, that same hope, that same forgiveness, that same peace is still available to each and every one of us. Because Jesus is still willing to take our sin and shame away and offer us forgiveness and peace in its place. But that peace that we find in Christ also comes with a price. And that's why we need to also see our next lesson, and that's the need for Jesus. And you know, I find it interesting. The other guests around the table that night ask what may be the most important question that any person could ever ask. Verse 39, when, when those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? They ask the question, but they never wait for the answer. Because the answer to their question is that man is Jesus. That man was the man who was born to save his people from their sins. He is the son of God. He is the perfect sacrifice. He's the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. And this is so essential for us to understand when we read this story. Because when this woman comes to Jesus with her burden of sin, Jesus doesn't just wink at her and says, you know what, don't worry about it. Like, it's not a big thing. I just, you know, I'm not that kind of guy. No. What Jesus is really doing here is he's saying, you know what, your sins are a big deal. In fact, they're so big that it's a matter of life and death before God himself. But Jesus also says, but I'm also willing to pay the price and take that sin upon myself. I'm willing to suffer in your place. I'm willing to endure my own humiliation and my own shame upon the cross to set you free from yours. I'm willing to lay down my own life and die so that you can be forgiven. So that you can know peace. So that you can know how much you are loved by God in spite of all of your mistakes and in spite of all of your sin. So these words of forgiveness that Jesus speaks to this woman in the past, they cost him everything to say to her, you're forgiven. And they cost him everything when he says them to us. You know, forgiveness is only spoken by Jesus under the shadow of a cross. The cost of our forgiveness is the life of Jesus himself. With that comes our final lesson this morning. And that is that love is the fruit of forgiveness. Because a forgiving heart is a loving heart. And that's why I think we see such gratitude in this woman towards the Lord who washes away her sins in our passage. To be, you know, to be forgiven is to be in love. And that's why we should see such gratitude bloom in our hearts as well when we experience that same salvation. You know what? If you have been forgiven and if you're listening this morning and you know firsthand the salvation of the Lord, 
Don't let your hearts grow cold for Jesus. Because Jesus was once asked, Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? And his answer was love. He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your strength. Because he doesn't want our lip service. He doesn't want more activity. He doesn't want more programs. He doesn't want cold, calculated acts of devotion on our part. What God wants from us is he wants us to love him. He wants us to love him more than anything else on earth. Love him best, love him passionately, love him fully. And even love him extravagantly. Because you know what? As I was looking at the passage this morning, you realize this isn't actually the, the, the only time that a woman weeps at Jesus' feet and anoints him. Because it happens one other time just before his death in Bethany. And that time, Jesus says to his disciples in Matthew 26, 10, he says, why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. And I was thinking about that this week because, you know, I know many people hope that, you know, on the day that we die and we see Jesus face to face, we hope that one day he's going to look into our eyes and say those words, well done, good and faithful servant. And what a blessing it will be when that happens. But maybe, just maybe, we should also be praying on that day that when Jesus looks into our eyes, he'll say, you know what, in living your life, your love for me was a beautiful thing. Your love for me was a testimony to the people around you. Your love for me was your offering. So celebrate your salvation. Don't let it grow cold. Don't let your passion diminish. Don't let that truth fade. Live in it. Live in awe of it. Let it inspire your worship. Let it change how you live. Let it define your choices. Let it consume your thoughts, overwhelm your hearts. Let it fill you with love. And take these words to heart. 1 John 4, beginning verse 9. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. But then skipping down to verse 19, he says, we love him because he first loved us. Let God's grace and love towards you fill you with love for him. Because I think that's the lesson we learned today. And even as we close this morning, I think one of the saddest facts that I know is that there are millions of people out there who think God has given up on them. You know, they've blown it, they've fallen, they think God just doesn't want anything to do with them anymore. But nothing could be farther from the truth. And that's something all of us need to hear this morning. Jesus didn't die for perfect people. He died for us. He died for sinners. He died for the misfits and the beaten up and the broken. He died for people who run when they should stand and stand when they should run. So I want to say something that I don't usually say in a sermon. Because my desire this morning and even my prayer is that your hearts would be restless until they can find true rest in Christ. Because what are the things that haunts your minds? When you're alone? What are, what are the things in your life that you hope never get brought to light because you're afraid of what other people might think? What shame do you carry that makes you feel unlovable? What are the sins that try to drag you down and accuse your soul that make you feel unforgivable? Let go of those things because they were nailed to the cross. Jesus took your sin and he took your shame and that's 
who God is. That's what Jesus came to do. And that's the message of grace written large in the form of a cross. Because the hope for our shame is found in Christ. And it's a hope of acceptance. Even when we have trouble accepting ourselves. And it's the hope of forgiveness. Even when our sins feel like scarlet. And it's the hope of peace. Breaking the power of sin. Releasing you from your past to find new life in Christ. In Christ you are loved. In Christ you are forgiven. And in Christ you can know peace. And I just felt that I should close off our time this morning with the words of a song that I love by Michael W. Smith who writes these words, I hope this speaks to the deepest part of you. Because the words of this song say, I have been unfaithful. I have been unworthy. I have been unrighteous. I have been unmerciful. I have been unreachable. I have been unteachable. I have been unwilling. I have been undesirable. I have been unwise. But because of you and all that you went through, I know that I have never been unloved. Let's pray. Father God, we know that in Christ we have never been unloved. And I, Lord, I pray that you would speak that truth into our hearts this morning. And yet sometimes, Lord, we don't feel it because, well, sometimes there's sin in our lives. Sometimes there's shame that overshadows that love. Sometimes there's regret. Sometimes we're just too busy carrying these burdens around with us in order to just truly appreciate the love that you have for us. And Lord, sometimes we use all of those things to judge others as well. And we see their shame and their regret and their sin and never see the person that they are. But Lord, this morning I'm not going to pray for strength for us to carry those burdens because our prayer is that we'd be broken by those burdens so that we can seek our Savior. Lord, we don't pray for rest. We pray our hearts would be restless until we find the source of true rest in you. Because, Lord, we know that our joy and our freedom is born in knowing salvation in Christ. You are the source of life and peace. You are the source of hope and assurance. You are the source of our freedom and our forgiveness. And, Lord, if there's someone here this morning who doesn't know that firsthand, I, Lord, I pray that they would seek it out today in seeking you. That they would know salvation is available to them by grace through faith in Christ Jesus. And Lord, for those of us who have experienced it, Lord, I pray that there would be a great love in our hearts that are born out of our great forgiveness. That, Lord, you would not let our hearts grow cold, that we would live each moment of our lives knowing and seeking our Savior and experiencing the salvation and living in it that you have given to us. Because, Lord, they gave him the name Jesus because he would save the people from their sins. And Lord, that's what you came to do. And we praise you for who you are and what you have done for us. We thank you for our forgiveness. And may our hearts respond truly with love. In Jesus' name, amen.